Ladies and gentlemen, now hear this. High achievement for children at risk, a model that works. Now that we have your attention, given the importance of the agenda, know that you are listening to a Westminster Town Hall Forum originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church here in downtown Minneapolis. You are about to hear Dr. James P. Comer. Dr. Comer is professor of child psychology and director of the school development program at Yale University's Child Development Center. Dr. Comer received his medical degree from Howard University in Washington, D.C. Because he was moved at the time by a sense of the powerlessness and depression that afflicted black men, women, and children of Washington's slums, he chose to specialize in psychiatry as a means, a way of getting at the core issues. His work over the last 30 years has been based on the conviction that success in school, indeed in life, depends upon the support that families provide for their children. Dr. Comer has designed an in-school intervention model that provides family-like emotional support and encourages parents, even those who suffer from the effect of inner city crises, to share the responsibility of governing their schools. Dr. Comer began his work based on that philosophy in 1968 in the New Haven, Connecticut public school system. By 1980, children in the two main experimental schools in New Haven were scoring above the national average on achievement tests. It was a dramatic turnaround. The Rockefeller Foundation has been so impressed with the progress made under Dr. Comer's leadership that the foundation has recently pledged $15 million to advance his program throughout the country over the next five years. In keeping with what these Westminster forums are about, I, Donald Meisel, minister of this church, Westminster, and moderator of these forums, take particular pleasure in presenting and look forward with you to hearing this voice of conscience addressing a very key issue, high achievement for children at risk, a model that works. Dr. Comer. Thank you, uh, Minister Meisel, for that very generous uh, introduction, uh, and good, af good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it really is a very great uh, opportunity and a great pleasure to be here and to have an opportunity to speak before this uh, distinguished uh, forum. It's also a pleasure to uh, visit such a progressive area I've always been impressed with your social programs and attitudes and 
ideas in this part of the country, and I've had an opportunity to serve on committee with your mayor and uh, have very good feelings and impressions about his interest in work. So it's a pleasure to be here. Uh, we now face a time uh, where it is education or else. Uh, President Bush has made the statement that we need to have all of our young people, at least 90% of our young people, receiving a high school education by the year 2000, or we're not going to be able to compete with Germany, Japan, uh, and other industrialized and post-industrialized countries of the world in a very short period of time. And I would add that even if we import a workforce uh, and we do not make it possible for large numbers of our own people to participate in that workforce, we're going to have social problems that are so severe that no matter uh, what we do, uh, it's going to drag the country down and make it a really very different and unpleasant place. Uh, we need 90% graduation, and the fact is that we have 50 to 60% dropout uh, rates in some parts of our country. Uh, and this was not a problem before the 1950s. Before the 1950s, if you didn't do well in school and you dropped out, uh, you could take a job without an education on a in a farm, factory, variety of other places, and meet all of your adult care and responsibilities. But it's a big problem now because in order to meet your adult responsibilities, uh, you need an education. Now, my interest in this uh, problem uh, is very personal. Uh, I grew up with a plan to become a general practitioner in my hometown and watched the kind of problems and observed the kinds of problems uh, that meant that we were going to be in trouble if we didn't ed educate our young people. And I realized this because of my own background. Uh, my mother was born in rural Mississippi, and that's her story, Maggie's American Dream, uh, that my book is about. Uh, rural Mississippi to a very poor sharecropper who was a very good man, but he was killed by lightning when she was six years of age, and because there were no support programs in that day, um, a cruel stepfather came into their lives, and he was abusive in every way and would not allow the children to go to school. And they moved to Memphis and had very difficult circumstances. Eventually, she ran away to, uh, to East Chicago, Indiana, uh, wanted to get an education. But when she was not able to do so, left school and uh, decided and declared that if I ever have children, all of my children are going to get an education. And then she set out to very, very, very carefully find my father. <laughs> she didn't want to make the mistake that her mother made and that uh, my father had been married once before and so she insisted that he bring some proof that uh, he was not married and uh, she uh, finally insisted that he have a letter from his ex-mother-in-law. <laughs> Okay, okay. Uh, but uh, it paid off because uh, they... Are we sure it's... Uh, yes, you're uh, Okay. Uh, it paid off because the, uh, the uh, two of them together, my mother with no education working as a domestic, 
My father, with a sixth grade education, uh, working in a, as a steel mill laborer, were able to send the five of us to college where we were able to obtain 13 college degrees. Now, while that was happening in my family, I had friends who were just as bright, just as able, who went off to school with me from our low-income minority community on the fringe of the highest socioeconomic majority community, and they were just as bright and just as able, and they all went on a downhill course. One died early from alcoholism, one spent a good part of his life in jail, and the other has been in and out of mental institutions all of his life. Now, that's too much loss. We can't have that much loss and expect to be a country that will survive and thrive. And it was that concern that led me away from my plan to become a general practitioner into psychiatry, child psychiatry, and eventually looking at schools at the place that we can make a difference for children from low-income backgrounds. And so that is how I got involved in uh, schools and began to think about what we could do in schools to make a difference. Uh, our project, as mentioned, we went into two schools in New Haven that were 99% black and almost all of the children were poor. Uh, they had the worst attendance, worst behavior, worst achievement in the city. Uh, that was in 1969. They were at grade level by 1979 or 80, and by 84 they were tied for the third and fourth highest levels of achievement in the city. With very good attendance and very few behavior problems. Uh, and so we were able to turn those schools around in a very dramatic fashion and now developed a dissemination program in New Haven uh, where we're in all the elementary schools, middle school, and one high school, and we're in 14 school districts in uh, 12 states across the country. Now let me talk a little bit about what we found when we went into those schools and what we did. Uh, we went into schools where there was a culture of failure, where everybody involved had beliefs and attitudes and behaviors that were troublesome and that contributed to failure. Uh, eventually, we identified the underlying failure dynamic, and that is that there were large numbers of families under economic and social stress marginal to the mainstream uh, who were not able to give their children the kinds of experiences in school that would, uh, at home, that would allow them to go to school uh, and succeed. Uh, they, the children, as a result of the experiences at home, were often underdeveloped or differently developed, developed in a way that they could function on the playground, the housing project, and a variety of other places, but in ways that got them into trouble uh, in school. And on the school side, we had a staff, through no fault of their own, trained in ways that did not allow them to respond to the needs of the children. Uh, and the schools were organized and managed in a way so that even when they did understand that there was a special response needed, they weren't in a position to uh, respond. And there was also a belief that the children either had it or didn't have it, and they could turn their motivation on or off. And that led to viewing the children as bad or viewing them as not very bright and not having much ability. And the response on the part of the staff not knowing what else to do was to punish the children or to have low expectations for them. 
This led to a struggle between the ch child or children and the staff and a downhill course for all in school with the parents being angry and frustrated and disappointed uh, and eventually angry and alienated with the school people. Now, what kind of development then is needed for children to do well at school? It's the kind of development we see in families that are better educated and who can give their children preschool uh, experiences. Let's talk about development for a minute then. Uh, children are born totally dependent, and yet by 18 years of age, they're expected to be able to uh, carry out all their adult tasks and responsibilities. Uh, therefore, they need to get an education, uh, they need to be uh, able to work and hold a job, uh, to be able to live in a family, rear children if they elect to do so, and be motivated to become responsible citizens of the society. In order to uh, do that, uh, children need to be cared for from the, for, from the very beginning and in very specific kinds uh, of ways. Uh, their basic needs for food, clothing, and shelter have to be met by the important people around them, usually the parents. And in so doing, an emotional attachment and bond develops between the parent and the child. And that uh, bond really allows the parents to help the children grow across critical developmental pathways and to channel aggressive energy into the energy of work, play, uh, and learning. And the relationship makes it possible for the parents to do that. And as they influence the development, the children grow across critical pathways, such as social interactive pathway, the psycho-emotional, moral, linguistic, uh, and the intellectual cognitive. And it is development across all these pathways, not simply the intellectual, but all of these pathways that really makes it possible for children to grow uh, and learn and succeed uh, in school. Now, uh, the, the aggressive energy is channeled into the energy of work and play uh, as parents interact with their children in a variety of ways. And there are many ways, uh, incidental kinds of ways, that we interact with our children. And I was coming from New York just the other day, and there was a mother on a train with a three-year-old or four-year-old and a younger ba uh, child. And all the way from New York to New Haven, uh, they talked to each other and they talked about uh, what they were observing outside of the car and what they observed inside the car. And they talked about going to the ballet and they talked, the child talked about wanting to uh, wear a tuxedo like his father and the mother helped him explore all of the issues that he brought up and even that the younger sister brought up. And it is that kind of interaction in incidental, accidental kinds of ways over time as children raise questions about uh, what's going on around them that parents help their children grow across all those developmental pathways. Uh, also, uh, something more closely related to academic learning is reading. And we who recognize the importance of reading and who enjoy it begin to read to our children at a very early age. Uh, and we, the stories that they like to hear deal with their fear and their anxiety and their doubts as little people growing up in a big and challenging and frightening world. And so they want to hear those stories again and again and again and again. And about the last again, 
They have memorized the words and associate them with the picture on the page. And when we turn to that page, the child begins to read from memory. We get all excited. We say, look, mom, Johnny can read. And when grandma calls on the weekend, we say, guess what, grandma, Johnny can read. Now, Johnny and Mary notice that all of those important and powerful authority figures around them are excited about the fact that they can read. And so they want to read more and more. Uh, and they want to master every aspect of their environment in order to win the approval of the adults or, around them. Uh, and they also gain, as they notice, that the parent starts from the top of the page, reads from left to right, uh, reads from top down, and exclaims in certain ways. Now, all of those are pre-reading skills. And that child goes to school uh, either prepared to read or already reading. That child also goes to school, having had that kind of experience, able to sit still and take in information when it's appropriate to do so, uh, able to be spontaneous and curious when it's appropriate to do so, and able to work well with other children. Now, those of us in school who interact with that child are very impressed, very impressed. And we convey the fact that we think they're very nice children and that they have a great future. Uh, and that makes an attachment and bond possible in school, uh, similar to the attachment and bond that takes place at home. And home and school together then can relate the child to the program and the school, make it meaningful, and help them grow and succeed within the school. Uh, setting. Now, that doesn't happen for large numbers of low-income children, and yet it is possible to provide that kind of experience for them in school and in community uh, if we would really think about it. And yet, we can't mandate change in schools because schools are custom and they're structured to work in certain ways. And so we can't say change and expect them to do so. We also can't talk about child development alone and expect them to understand. We did that and it didn't work. Uh, we talked to teachers and they would all agree uh, about the issues of child development. And some of those who would shake their head the most and agree with us the most uh, couldn't carry it out in the classroom. And so what we had to do was put in place a program gradually um, that we call the School Development Program uh, that, uh, had, that really was a structure and put in place structures that allowed a process to take place that allowed people to gradually change and work differently and eventually support the development of children uh, in the school. Uh, the School Development Program is a nine-component project it has three mechanisms, three operations, and three guidelines. And the governance and management mechanism is the key. And that's what many people today are calling school-based management. And the governance and management team is made up of parents selected by parents, teachers selected by teachers, uh, often headed by the principal, but it can be headed by uh, parents uh, or teachers. Um, and the social support staff or mental health team is represented on it, and the non-professional support staff, such as the custodian or clerk and uh, cafeteria worker and the like. 
but all of the adults with a stake in what goes on in the school are represented on this governance and management team. And they carry out three critical operations. Uh, one is the comprehensive school plan that focuses on the social climate of the school that aids so overall development as well as the academic program. And then there's staff development to enable people to gain the skills to carry out the comprehensive school plan. Uh, and then assessment and monitoring or, or modification on an ongoing basis that allows the school to change gradually and in response to what people are finding out as they work. Now the other two mechanisms, the parents program and the mental health team. And the parents program allows the parents to get involved in decision making within the school, to have meaningful roles and activities within the school, and they're involved largely in the social program of the school so that they help create a good social climate in the school. And with a good social climate, the parents and the teachers and the children can all interact in a way where they come to trust each other and respect each other uh, and the behavior problems go down uh, a great deal. Also, we are then able to teach the children the social skills necessary to elicit a good and positive response from teachers in the same way that middle-class children, middle-income children from better educated families do when they go to school. Uh, the mental health team starts out by responding to the problems of individual children but gradually moves towards prevention because most of the prob problems in school are not problems of the children themselves. Most of the children are not sick, they're not bad. Uh, they have not had certain developmental experiences and so as the mental health team works and becomes aware of certain problems, uh, they make adjustments. So we had a youngster who came in on a Friday from rural North Carolina from a tight-knit, warm community and he was dropped in school on a Monday morning by a visiting aunt who wanted him to get a better education up north. And she took him directly to, the principal took him directly to the classroom. He looked at all of those strange faces. He was eight years of age. Uh, he panicked. He kicked the teacher in the leg and he ran out. Now we thought that was a fairly healthy response for an eight-year-old. <laughs> But it's the kind of problem that gets the child sent to the principal, punished, sent back to the classroom, somebody laughs, he punches him out, he gets sent back to the principal, it goes around and around and around until he's labeled disturbed. And then he's sent off to somebody like me to have his head fixed. Uh, rather than do that, we had a discussion, the mental health team, discussion with the staff. We talked about what it must be like to be eight years old and find yourself in a completely strange environment with no support. Uh, and out of that discussion came an orientation program, both in the classroom and in the school that allowed children to succeed. Uh, every problem in the schools that we encountered, every behavioral problem we encountered, we addressed in that way. We thought about what children need to feel comfortable, to develop confidence, and to be able to succeed in the school. And one by one, we addressed them until those problems went down greatly. It allowed the staff to focus more on developing the curriculum uh, and on teaching and on uh, assessment. Now, uh, the other 
uh, important part of the program uh, were three guidelines. And the guidelines uh, that we live by and the attitudes that we live by are generated within the governance and management team. Uh, one is a no-fault policy. Uh, we don't blame the society, we don't blame the children, we don't blame the families, we don't blame the teacher. We spend all of that energy finding ways to solve the problems that we uh, encounter. Uh, the second is b uh, making decisions by consensus rather than vote. Because when you vote, you have winners and you have losers. And the losers say, well, you won, go do it. Uh, rather than having that attitude, we have uh, decided on the basis of discussion about what's good for children, what seemed to work, and then we would try that. And if it didn't work, we would try what others thought. And maybe a third way or fourth way would come up in the process of trying to uh, develop something that worked for uh, children. And really, that's our program. It, the three uh, mechanisms, the three operations, and the three guidelines that all work together to create a good climate that allows parents, teachers together to support the development of children, the overall development. And once the overall development is supported and they're able to relate to teachers and the programs of the school, low-income children will do as well as anybody else. Now, it also is an approach that allows the local creativity, the creativity of the teachers, the custodian, everybody in the building makes a contribution. So that a teacher the other day read about a city somewhere in the east where there was a mystery Valentine sender. Uh, and she said, what about having Valentines for all the children in the school? Uh, and out of that came a, a great effort that created a great deal of enthusiasm and excitement throughout the school. And that's what helps children feel good about the school, good about themselves, uh, and uh, able to relate to the staff and the program of the school. Uh, also, there's a great sense of ownership. Everybody is thinking, working, trying to solve problems together, and when they get successes together that they've all helped plan, uh, they all feel good about it uh, together. Uh, and it was out of that local creativity that we eventually asked and began to think about the fact that our children are as bright as anybody else. Why aren't they doing just as well? and realize that social skills and the ability to function well in all kinds of settings are terribly important. And out of that came uh, the idea of a social skills curriculum for inner city children. We didn't impose it. We talked with parents about what their children will need to succeed as adults and what kinds of programs might bring that about. And we developed in free and leisure time a program uh, in which the children uh, were systematically taught the same kinds of skills that mainstream children gain simply by growing up with their uh, parents. And uh, we developed a program in business and economics, politics and government, health and nutrition, spiritual leisure time activities, and a whole series of activities in those areas that integrated the teaching of basic skills with appreciation of the arts with social skills. And I won't go into the detail of that, and we might discuss it uh, in the discussion period. But that program 
gave the children a sense of direction, gave the parents a sense that their children had a future in the mainstream of the society, and gave the teachers the sense that they weren't working with children who had no future, the nobodies of society, but that they were preparing children for a mainstream role in the society and changed the entire culture uh, of the school. Now, let me begin to close by raising a few questions. Why do we have this problem at this time, and why is it really different for schools to uh, work differently, uh, and why are blacks, natives, Americans, Americans and Hispanics affected more than uh, other groups, and I'm going to go briefly through this. Again, we have the problem at this time because the economy changed, the nature of the economy changed in the 1950s. Yesterday, all before the 1940s, 50s especially, uh, you could be uneducated and unskilled and take care of yourself and your family. And also, there was a natural sense of community. There was, there was a grocery store uh, in the neighborhood. There were churches. There were all kinds of, and the school was in the neighborhood. Uh, and there were natural supports there. And there were interactions that supported the development of children. Uh, when I was 11 years of age, uh, every Friday we used to go shopping. And there, was, and there was never a time in the A&P store that I didn't bump into someone from my school with my parents. The teacher was there, the custodian, uh, somebody from the school. And there was never a time in which there wasn't an exchange of information about how we were doing in school and what to do if we didn't do what we were supposed to do in school. And so there was an automatic transfer of authority from home to school that reduced behavior problems that supported the development of children and did so at a time when it wasn't absolutely necessary if you were to go out and earn living. Now that, uh, now that it's absolutely necessary to have an education and go out and earn living, we don't have those structures present that support development. I used to walk to school hand in hand with my third grade teacher. Very few te children can do that uh, anymore uh, because uh, high mobility, uh, communication and particularly television have served to destroy the sense of community that once existed and the automatic authority transfer from home to school that also allows schools to support the development of children. All of these changes have affected all of our communities and all of our families. But blacks, Hispanics, and Native Americans have been affected more. And it is important to understand why, or we won't develop the programs because we have the wrong assumptions about why uh, these minority groups aren't doing well. Uh, M M European immigrants and Asians had a great deal of hardship, but they also had cultural continuity and cohesion uh, as a result of that. And political gain political power in one generation and as a result of that gain economic power that permitted three generations of group development and change that really paralleled economic change in this country. So that you could be uneducated and unskilled right up until 1900s, take care of yourself and family, 
uh, and uh, carry out your adult tasks and responsibilities and give the children for the next generation the kind of preparation that was needed in the heavy industrial era between 1940 and 1945. Successful on the job market there, you could give the children the high level of education and skill needed for the period between 45 and 80 and on into the post-industrial period thereafter. Now, not all of the European and Asian children and families made it, but a large number were able to do so because the coming parallel uh, these changes. Uh, blacks had a very different experience and Hispanics and Native Americans, and I'm gonna mention the black experience. Uh, blacks experienced a series of shocks with negative psychosocial consequences. First of all, there was cultural disruption and culture is extremely important in giving people a sense of power and direction. Uh, then slavery was imposed, a system of forced dependency, inferiority, and no sense of tomorrow. And then exclusion and abuse from in the mainstream of the society, uh, or in the society uh, after slavery, with undereducation of the black population during the critical period up to 1945, between 1900 and 1945, when most of America was preparing for the post-industrial uh, age. Uh, and uh, as much as four to eight times, sometimes 25 times as much was spent on the education of a white child as a black in the eight states that had 80% of the black population. The same disparity existed in higher education. And then we got rural to urban movement with the loss of the small town culture and, and the church cultures that supported many poor families. Uh, and also no entry to the mainstream economy uh, by black uh, entrepreneurs uh, or uh, business people uh, and no political power. And with no political power, no economic power, blacks worked at the lowest level uh, of the uh, economy. No political power until the 1960s when we were already into the last stage of the industrial uh, era. And political power without economic power is not much power at all. Uh, as a result of that, blacks were not able to exercise the same kind of push-pull phenomenon, push to uh, pull from those who were making it into the, into the mainstream, uh, pull on family uh, and, and friends uh, into the mainstream, and push within families uh, to take advantage of the things that were opening up. Uh, also, black professionals, were, black educated people were li limited to professional areas and could not provide the same kind of support uh, for their group and make the system work uh, in the same way that people in the economic mainstream could do. Now, uh, the, as the church culture was lost for many, you got generation to generation transmission of problem behaviors, but also uh, with the church culture, transmission of desirable uh, behaviors. And as a result of that, black community did reasonably well right into the 1950s. Uh, and, uh, but when education became the ticket of admission to living wage jobs, then many problems began to develop in the black community and you began to get families that once functioning well, functioned well, beginning to function less well, and eventually being overrun by drugs and lots of other problems. Uh, families that uh, were 
lived under these circumstances uh, were under a great deal of stress and unable to provide their children with the kind of preparation that would make it possible for them to uh, succeed uh, in school, and schools could not respond because they were not prepared. They had not made the adjustment necessary for any children, not to mention children from families that were under stress. Now let me close by raising some questions. What have we learned? Well, what we learned, what we learned, is that you need some structure, some mechanism in the building on an ongoing basis that allow people to identify the problems and to adjust and change in a way uh, and create a climate that will support the, de the development of children. You also need the support of the uh, uh, central office administration uh, and you need parental uh, involvement. Uh, that these things together can create a climate that will allow children to uh, succeed. Final point. Don't we know how to rear healthy children so that they can succeed in the mainstream of the society? And isn't the problem simply the absence of a political will? Yes, that's true. We do know for the most part. I think there's some things we don't know because we have not dealt fully with the consequences of the past and we are too quick to move to uh, solutions that sound simple and quick and not to think about the complicated relationships among people that must be dealt with if we are to bring about changes and that it's not enough to know about development of children. We also have to know how to bring about those changes in ways that will have desirable outcomes. And let me close by pointing out that we all had hoped that school integration would work and would work well. But what we didn't pay attention to was that there were consequences of people being locked out of the system and there were consequences on both sides and that we had to develop a way of working that would allow us to overcome those negative consequences. And we didn't do that. We took an abstract principle that was right. And we had the political power and will to make that happen, and it happened. But we didn't carry it out in a way that would sustain and permit a permanent solution to that problem. We can't wait, we can't make a mistake in the way we change schools. We can't go for quick and easy solutions because we're, we don't have much time. We have one more generation of failed children and we are on a downhill course that we can't correct. Uh, you have too much chaos, too much uh, frustration uh, and people will begin to call for ways of dealing with the problem that will change the nature of American democracy. We won't have American democracy anymore. And so we've got to make it happen. We can make it happen, but we've got to give it good thought and we've got to base what we do on what we know about children and what we know about how adults function and what we know about how institutions function. With that, I'll stop and respond to your questions uh, after a moment. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much, uh, Dr. Comer. At a meeting of educators that was held here last evening in the church parlor, uh, one of them uh, said that he had become, after reading your material and hearing you on another occasion, that he had become a Comer convert. So I think you've won many more converts here today. Uh, those of you who must leave uh, the audience now may feel free to do so. Uh, this is also the time to pass your questions uh, to the aisle. And they will be picked up and brought forward, and we'll address as many of them as we possibly can. The radio audience also has opportunity to present questions. Uh, they may do so, you may do so, by calling 332-3421. For the radio audience uh, that has uh, turned uh, tuned in late, let me simply remind or announce that the speaker indeed has been Dr. James P. Comer, that he is professor of child psychiatry and director of the school development program at Yale University's Child Study Center. His theme has been high achievement for children at risk, a model that works. We, you are listening uh, to the Westminster Town Hall Forum and the co-sponsor today of, of the forum is the McKnight Foundation. So, sir, if you would return to the podium, we'll pose some questions. Last night and again today, sir, you mentioned the conditions for trust uh, in, a, in a school setting. No fault. Uh, decide by consensus. And what was the third one? I missed it uh, uh, this yeah, time around. I, I might have uh, failed to mention it, but <laughs> uh, it is uh, no, para no paralysis. The, uh, you cannot paralyze the leader, and the leader can't ignore the participants. Uh -huh. uh, that if you do that, uh, people won't participate and they won't feel a sense of uh, ownership. And all of those things and living in that way together in a school creates a sense of trust, cooperation, collaboration. The third was you don't paralyze the leader, is right. that it? That's right. Okay, I, I like the sound of that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> One other thing before we turn to these other questions, you mentioned in your uh, talk last evening, informal talk, the figure of a house in uh, coming apart. Yes. Uh, I, I found that a very vivid symbol and it might convey something to the audience. Well, one of the problems that I find in education is that almost anything you do with great vigor and uh, great enthusiasm uh, will lead to a positive outcome. And so people run around the country saying this works, that works, the other works, isn't this wonderful? They all work, everything works, but if you leave, it goes away frequently, and uh, it's not sustained. And so education runs around from one new thing to another uh, in a troublesome kind of way without really addressing the fundamental needs and the fundamental issues interfering with learning. And that in part is because they uh, lack really a science of, uh, of schooling and how it takes place. But the point I made to illustrate the problem was that uh, it's like an old house that has tumbled down and been allowed to deteriorate. Uh, the curtains or blinds are torn apart and off the wall, and the pictures are crooked and the floor is buckled and the, 
the, the beams, the support beams, the sagging, and the foundation is uh, 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 sagging. Uh, almost anything you do in that building would be a help. Uh, you can go in and straighten the pictures, you could straighten the blinds, and that would help, that would work, it would be better. But until you address the foundation, and until you strengthen the structural beams, then you're not going to get the kind of change you need. And that's what's needed in education. You have to go after the core issues, the foundation uh, and the structural beams. The foundation of learning is good relationships between the adult teachers and uh, child learners, and good relationships among home and school. Uh, and until you create something that sustains that on an ongoing basis within a system and allows you to come back and recreate that when, uh, when you drift away from it, then you're not going to get the fundamental change that will allow all children to learn within a system. Uh, and that, that was the point. Thank you. I, I thought that was intriguing and is. Question from the audience. Do you support schools made up of students with identified like characteristics, for instance, Afrocentric schools, or do you favor schools with greater diversity? Well, we've had such schools where people were alike. We had, uh, we've had uh, uh, German schools, we've had uh, all different kinds of ethnic group schools and various public schools, systems across the country. But the issue we're really addressing is what can we do about low-achieving black youngsters, not only black males, to be black women as well, who are bright and able and who are not doing as well as they should. Uh, and they need also to be in a setting that mirrors the setting they're going to be functioning in as adults. And because this is a world of diverse people, they need to be in that diverse setting. On the other hand, I know exactly what people who are proposing these schools are concerned about, is that children are living in settings now where they're not receiving affirmation of themselves and their group. And they're in such schools and they're in such neighborhoods and communities. I would argue that such schools, such affirmation belongs in the community first. But what we're up against is that our society has allowed many communities to deteriorate to the point that there's no other system in that community that can provide that kind of support other than mm -hmm. schools. Mm -hmm. So that I'm not opposed to experimental schools here and there, but, not, but let's not grab the idea and run with it as the solution, because it's not. Uh, and we should learn from those schools and try and bring what we've learned back into the mainstream mm -hmm. system after we've demonstrated that the children can learn. And I might point out also that they're not going to learn in those schools unless they have people who provide the kind of support for their development that mm -hmm. is important. Mm -hmm. Thank you, sir. Uh, in your opinion, has busing been helpful for the at-risk minority child? Well, it's been uh, helpful in some places uh, and not helpful in others. It depends. For uh, Children always need people who care about them 
and who provide them with a good setting and support their development. And where busing is able to do that, then they're going to be successful, and where busing doesn't do that, they're not going to be successful. Another question from the audience. I understand that you talked to parents, teachers, and other adults about how best to serve the students. Were the children ever part of the discussion and planning? Yes, and we're doing more of that in the middle school and, and high school in particular, uh, but in the elementary school also, but usually indirectly, and I have an amusing story about uh, one of the uh, uh, responses from the children. Uh, after a program of keeping children with the same teacher for two years because of the problem of discontinuity in the lives of many low-income children, and the staff came up with, addressed this problem, decided to keep the children with the same teachers for two years. Some children who made no academic gain uh, the first year made two years of academic gain in the second. Uh, but we, had, we asked the children what, how they felt about it. And one of the children said, uh, well, it was wonderful staying with the same teacher for two years, but it wasn't so good staying with the same students for two years. <laughs> <laughs> Here's a question from the radio audience. Why do African-American children start out at an early age motivated and doing well in school and then get lost in the system and don't do as well when they get older? Yes, because... There are many reasons, but there are about three things that happen somewhere about eight years of age. Children, a disproportionate number of African-American families are under economic and social stress and again, do not receive some of the experiences they need. And as a result of that, by third grade or so, uh, their preparation is outstripped by the demand of the school. Uh, the second thing that happens is that the thrust for autonomy is so great it's very difficult for uh, adults to influence the, uh, uh, the functioning uh, of the children. But the third and perhaps most important thing is that children develop the cognitive capacity about that time to understand who they are, their families, and who these people in the education uh, mainstream, the school, who they are and how they're different. And the source of self-affirmation really comes from the people at home uh, and not the people at school. And children begin to turn away from school, school people, what they're advocating, and are under greater pressure to confirm to uh, social networks uh, at home in the community uh, that can be troublesome. Mm -hmm. Children place themselves also in the society somewhere between 8 and 12. They look at what their uncle's doing, their mother, father, uh, all their friends and neighborhoods, people in the neighborhood, and that's me, as opposed to what other people are doing who are in the mainstream of the society and more fortunate. Also, public policy has worked in a way that the black middle class and better educated people are no longer in contact in ways with low-income families that they once were. And all of this together has caused the... Uh, uh, the leveling off and the drop in achievement that mm -hmm. we see. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Here's a question from the floor. I am somewhat concerned about your call for bringing children into the middle class mainstream when the mainstream itself should be critiqued. I agree. <laughs> 
And yet the best way to critique it and the best way to get it to change is to have more educated young people from low-income backgrounds uh, in there capable of doing a good critique and capable of bringing about and making an input to the public policy uh, in a way that will bring about change. Mm. Uh, this is from the radio audience again. If we would like to encourage our communities to adopt these programs on both a local and national level, how do we go about it? Well, I, <laughs> uh, certainly um, school boards are the place to start. Um, but state legislature and getting state legislatures to support activities, but also getting business to support uh, programs that go after, and somebody used the word last night, the core issues. Um, there are a lot of nice programs and nice things that you can do that I think um, choice and other approaches represent. But choice does not go after the core problem. Uh, it does not go after creating the kind of environment that will help children grow, and it does not go after the problem of teachers and staff and uh, others who simply don't understand why some of the children are not prepared to grow and have a structure that won't allow them to help them grow. Until we go after that, um, uh, choice and some of the other nice things we do, and those are good things, they're good programs, but some of the nice things we do are a lot like the um, the dessert rather than the, the full meal that we mm -hmm. need. And we've got to go after creating the full meal for everybody before we, mm -hmm. we go to the dessert. Uh, this ties in with the uh, previous question. Is there an address to send for, for specifics in your model, or how do people get more information? Well, uh, the Child Study Center in New Haven, and we can send you material, but we also have a book. I have a book called School Power uh, that was 1980 Free Press that describes the program. It's behind now. We're about to revise it. And I, but my latest book, Maggie's American Dream, uh, also gives, uh, in the last part of it, describes the program and, uh, and the essential features of the program and actually is more up to date. Your model doesn't appear to require substantially greater financial resources. Is that correct? That, that's correct. And we deliberately designed the model in that way. Uh, we designed it so that psychologists, social workers, special education teachers, and people uh, who are already in schools can learn to work differently and in a way that they can help their colleagues, teachers in the classroom, think about children, think about systems, uh, and how to make it all work together to support the development of children. Uh, we, and, and in the first year, after the first year, as soon as we were able to get established, I pulled back from the day-to-day -day activity because it's hard to support a psychiatrist in the class, in the schools. And so it's designed to take very little extra money. Uh, the only money, extra money is for training people in the principles of the program. The decline of the two-parent family has been a major factor in the decline of education. How do we solve that basic problem? Well, we're not going to make the two-parent family, uh, two family come back very easily, so we have to think about 
uh, how you help children grow regardless of the kind of family they're in, which means that schools, um, families must work more closely together and that agencies within the institution, within the society, youth serving agencies, have to think more consciously about how they structure their programs. And I'm talking about the Boy Scouts and recreational programs and a whole variety of activities. We have to think about what we're doing. We're not just there for frills and to provide kids with good times. We're there to support the development of young people so that they can function in what has become a more complex society. Functioning is more difficult today. It's not like it was when we grew up, where it took almost nothing to go out and function and succeed. It takes a great deal to succeed today. And it takes a great deal of interaction between the adult authority figures and uh, the children. And so everybody must join in helping because that structure isn't going to come back very easily. And even when it's there, it's not necessarily desirable. It doesn't always work. Interesting question from the audience, or double question. What made Maggie so successful in raising her children? Where did her strength come from, and what happened to Maggie's siblings? <laughs> uh, I thought about that a lot, and it was, a, it was an oral uh, history that I did uh, with my mother, and I'd, it seems to me that the strength really came from um, her six years with her own good and caring father, uh, and then her own intelligence and personality. Uh, but it was a combination of the two, and I think that in a way she bounced off of her stepfather psychologically. She decided uh, that uh, she was going to be the opposite of her cruel stepfather. Whatever he stood for, uh, she was against that. That was a pretty helpful model because he was a pretty evil man. Uh, <laughs> uh, and uh, and uh, my friend and colleague, Norm Garmersey, is here, and he's written more about resiliency than anybody else in the country or world, maybe. And uh, I think she was one of those resilient people that no matter what you threw at her, somehow she was going to bounce back and, mm -hmm. and make it. Wonderful. We're running short on time, perhaps t uh, time for one more question. The place of arts in education. Very important. Um, you know, when, when money gets tight, the first thing we throw out is uh, the arts and athletics. The arts and athletics are tremendously important because there are the opportunities to bring young people and adults together in a creative activity. And there is great feedback and um, reward for the young people, and they have a contact with adults that they don't get in many other activities. It's also an opportunity to try out things, uh, to apply in many ways, much of what we're learning in the classroom uh, in other areas and in other arenas, and some of the kinds of thinking uh, planning, organizing, necessary to carry out arts and uh, athletic activities really carry over and back into the classroom uh, in enabling you to uh, achieve well in school. Uh, also the discipline that's needed, uh, the 
uh, stick-to-itness and all of the things that are really required to be successful in life uh, are involved in successful uh, arts and uh, uh, athletic activities. Well, Dr. Comer, would that there were more time to be with you in this manner. Uh, let it simply be said and agreed upon here that you represent Maggie's American dream having come true. Thank, Thank you, you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much.